Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from James chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 11 and go through chapter 5, verse 6. For our visitors, scripture reading is in our bulletin this morning. And it reads, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be the evidence against you and you will and against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word of God. Good morning again. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, I just want to applaud the women who put together the retreat that took place yesterday. Um, I am married to a woman who goes to this church and went to the retreat. And my wife just was talking about how well it went and how well it went, went um, how well it ministered to people and to her. And I just want to thank you guys. Let's give a hand clap to those. Um, So thank you so much, um, and I do pray and hope, like John um, said in his prayer, that what happened this weekend at the women's retreat would go a long way um, in your spiritual growth. So we continue in this book of James, the book of Proverbs. 
written more than a thousand years before James, says this. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. These seven things hated by God are often referred to as the seven deadly sins. Hated and deadly. Because they are the epitome of human arrogance. The kind of arrogance that hurts people. The kind of arrogance that disrespects God's authority. And James captures and aggressively confronts this sort of deadly, these sort of deadly, hated by God, pride in our passage today. James wants his listeners, believers or not, to enter into and recognize what I would describe as God's no-flex zone. A place where all human arrogance and insolence must stop showing off and bow down to God who stands alone as the judge, who alone is the ruler king, and who alone is the savior. Alone the judge, alone the ruler king, and alone the savior. I don't know if you've had this experience, but on more than one occasion, I've heard this criticism of Christians and Christianity. And, and, and they would, people would say to me, and I've heard this so many times, that, that their problem with Christians and church people is that we are so judgmental, right? And then I've even had them pull out what I would describe as my own weapon against me, right? Saying, I read the Bible one time, and even Jesus and the Bible says, thou shalt not judge. And it's like, whoa, in the face, right? So what is this call against judgment that first Jesus and then we see James talking about? Look at verse 11 with me in chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, excuse me, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. I want you to recognize that James says in verse 11 to not what? Speak evil against your brother. That word for speaking evil is slander or to speak wrongly or incorrectly or rat out someone for the wrong reasons, even if the stuff you're talking about is true. And then look at what he equates here to slander in verse 11. He says, speak evil or is the word judge. 
which means the judgment James and Jesus were talking about was making an evil, ill-informed assumption and then declaration and determination about someone based on subjective personal goals and personal views. And what James is saying is that no one has the right to determine everyone's right and wrong and declare someone and their actions or ways or culture, anything right or wrong on their own, right? According to their own standard or rule or operations manual. Judging someone subjectively is wrong. Why? The Lord alone created human beings and determines what in this world and determines what is right and wrong about what it means to be human and how we should live this life. And if you take your own approach in determining the right or wrong of everybody and the rights of everyone based on something you have come up with or have formulated and kind of what I would describe as Frankensteined from the word of God to, to make your own sense of judgment and law or what you think people should feel is right or wrong, you take on and become your own law and in doing so as James says you judge the law the law of God when we reinterpret or ignore what God says or speak ignorantly about what scripture says about people to judge people your way James says that kind of judgment is wrong and evil And so James says what in verse 12? There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, who died and made you God, right? Because the one who really died for the world, Jesus, is the one who is God and that makes you not God. And so you can't just go around assessing and judging and lowering and erasing people in your minds because you can or want to. Do you understand that the discriminations and all the isms that go along with it come from judgmentalism that James is talking about? We all have prejudices. We we all judge from the outset and outside and it's easy to not like or slight or, or, or not value or take seriously a person because you are the judge of smell or you're the judge of clothing type or the judge of what political party is right or skin color or gender or nationality or neighborhood residency or intellect or cash access or credit score or beauty or physique and yet God and his law has not made any of those things a standard of human right or wrong or worth or place of acceptance. And boy, our mouths get to moving. And we get to confronting and all self with all this righteous indignation and trying to fix people and accept them into our own images, right? And we get to texting and knowing what is wrong with them for this or that reason. And we are completely wrong, even if we are right. And chances of being right are slim because we, in our judgment, have bypassed and not checked ourselves and our opinions and views of others and demands of others in our mess up heart towards others to first be judged and measured by the law of love and grace by God the judge. 
And so before we judge, before we go off or, or turn off towards our neighbor, James is saying, check with the one who alone is the judge. Did God say this was wrong or that they should be rejected or scolded or held accountable by me? You need to question whether you're the one to do it for, for this or that. Or is this just you trying to play God and Supreme Court justice over your friend, your neighbor, your husband, your wife, your children, church people, others who don't do the things like you do? We must stop flexing our judgment in possible lies and ask, why do we feel and speak a certain way about certain people or certain person, place or thing? You can't judge the law of God. You can't stand above it. We have to submit what our eyes see and how our hearts feel to what God's law says we should feel about other people and how we should treat other people. I'm not trying to say there isn't right or wrong. If you heard me say that, you're wrong. There is right and wrong. There is, there is such a thing as sin. There are command, there's commandment breaking. We can definitely say, hey, this person's breaking this command or this people person is mistreating this person. And I think there are, there, there's some clear things. But is that judgment and, and the way you've decided to treat a person based on whatever sin they're committing or based on whatever they're doing, is it biblical in what you're thinking and doing? So we bring our judgments and our prejudices humbly to God first before we start laying down the law on other people. But James not only sets up God's no-flex zone in declaring that he alone is the judge of everyone's right and wrong and sense of worth, but also that the Lord alone is the ruler king because he alone, de alone determines what you and I are allowed to do, and he al alone determines what will ultimately happen. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you, as, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Right? All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. James, along with the rest of the Bible, is a clearing that you and I don't have the right to live this life the way we like or have determined to live it. Surprise. We can't just say, my goal is to get rich as I want or pleasure myself in how I want or have, have your own unmitigated, unabridged plan for your life. Why? Because God has given and shown us his will, his rules and will for how and why we should live this life. And guess what? You and I have been created by God to be ruled and not to have ultimate rule over our lives. But by mentioning that we are but a mist on a lake, it is saying that we are created, that you are a creature. You have no true ownership of anything in this life. 
You are a leasee of the life that God has given. Kelly and I own a house that we lease and and, the, and, and they, the leasees, have, the, have to live life in my house, right? Let me put, they are free. I'll use that word so you John Wayne, kind of red-blooded American, buck acting types will hear me, right? But they are free to live in my house as long as they first follow my rules about who and how many and what dates things should be paid and how things should be kept and what to do if things get broken. But every day that my tenants freely live, sleep, and get happy in my house is a day they have to ask, even if subconsciously, is this the will of Howard Brown, landlord, lord of the home I live in? Boy, I love the way that sounds. And we are being asked to do the same thing by God in our lives. As you freely plan and go and come on God's earth, we must open and, open and learn the word and find out if this is the will okay with the ruler and king and owner of me and everything else for me to live like this or plan to do this or that. Questioning whether we should even imagine or dream to be or do this or pursue this happiness in this way in God's word and this God-given job and this God-allowed love interest and this God-given relationship with my God-given money and God's house, with my God-given expertise, right? With my God-given ingenuity, with my God-allowed affluence in my God-given rights as an American. We must stop and ask, what does his word say? What does the God-given contract for being human with a ruler, God, and king say about what I can or cannot pursue, hold, or have, or long for, and act like? His will trumps, right? It kings. It, it rules over everything else. That's why James says this in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Know what you can do. And if you plan to do what you know the God least on life says not, not to, then it is sin to do it, regardless of how much you want it or think you can accomplish it. There are some things you are not allowed to do. There are some things we are not allowed to think or dream about or dwell on. Or there are some things we are not allowed to set as our goal for living. And we need to know before we make big plans for who we think we are going to be and how we think we are going to get there. But not only that, but we must slow down and see what our attitude is about why and what makes our world go round. Look with me again at verse 14. This person is planning and thinking they're going to make profit this way or another. And James says this in verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you have to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. All as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What is James talking about? 
He's talking about a certain humility of life that we should have in approaching everything we do. That admits I can't and do and don't have the ultimate and final power to make happen what I want to happen and have the effect that I want. I can't make life work out for sure the way I think it should. That like the mist James talks about, right? That, 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 we, that we, we don't actually have the ultimate power to make the next day happen when we can't even determine if we're going to be living the next day. Here's a real humbling thought. Your plan might move on without you in the ship, right? Your plan might sail and you might not be a passenger. That company you built, it may go on and make a lot of money and you might not be there to enjoy it. Imagine that. When I wanted to use the car, everyone, I remember back in the day, man. Back in the late 80s, making sure the flat top was right, nice and flat, nice and high, kid and play. <laughs> Getting fresh, that's the word we use. My friends coming over, you got the car, man? Yeah. We, we got the girls set up? Yeah. Meeting up at the movies? Yeah. I mean, that place smelled like polo cologne. Heading to the door, heading to the garage with the keys jingling in my hand. All my friends. And then I'm like, Dad, I'm going to the movies. Who car are you using? <laughs> Our car. <laughs> and he would sometimes go as far as going out to the window to the garage and be like, Boy, I don't see your car. I see my car. I see your mama car. Where's your car? You got a car? I want to see it. Man, the humility standing there and your friends and you're looking at the watch. You know, the girls, they waiting at the movie. We got to show up looking fresh and fly on time. We, we got our money right. We ready to go. We ain't got no car. Arrogant assumptions about things that don't belong to you. You're just a steward, right? You, you, you ultimately don't own life. You're a mist. You exist as long as the sun determines you exist. And we running around grabbing the keys to our life like somehow we have the right to just jump in it with our friends and our families and our neighborhoods and people who depend on us with arrogance. It got to the point my friends would be like, hey, man, before we come over, have you asked your dad first? <laughs> I got it under control, dude. I got it under control. I asked him first. All right, then we'll come over. 
And James is like, hey, look, before you make plans in this life, at least say, if it be the will of God. And I'm not talking about going through some routine of, if it be the will of God, hallelujah. Like getting in this kind of Christianese talk, I'm talking about an attitude, a, a prayer life that puts things before the Lord and is not based on the arrogance of your ability or your personal desire and will above or even parallel or God get with the program ways. James says, that's not just arrogant, that's evil. And not just evil arrogance, running out of the door, assuming that God is on your side and for your plans without knowing his plans is deadly arrogant. Don't you know that? And why so deadly to not pray and trust and recognize God first and foremost in our destiny? Because it means that you are living life or acting like one who is not under the protection of the Lord against all the evil and sin and meanness and mistakes and misappropriations and miscalculations and unseen disasters that we, that we or a mysterious world can bring. And if you're out there, right, it, it will either make you not have a God to pray to or not pray to God for help without this recognition of a sovereign Lord and king in, in law and attitude, we will be eaten alive by the world, ourselves and others. Worse, worse. Life may do exactly what you demand of it. Could you imagine just being successful in everything you say you're going to do? Not having a hitch. And demanded God to kind of get on board or get out. And if things worked out for you living and thinking like that, dead, deadliness will come because you and I will become more and more self-evident and self-sufficient and self-successful and self-dependent and less needy or trusting of God in his word and, 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 and way. And it might actually get in the way of your personal plans and progress, try, kind of putting God in that box. And you could lose what you could, what could have been our salvation. You will lose yourself and your self-dignity and work to get what you have all because you lost and left God as your king and ruler. So God being the king and ruler alone is good news. Because you don't have to be sure and in charge. And this is not about being a goal setter or or having focus. That's some good stuff. But about feeling like you hold your own destiny and your own design for how to live this life and and purpose it on your own. When someone better and greater and more reliable and more responsible knows it better than you do. But the good news of the no-flex zone doesn't stop there. Because James wants us to rest on the fact that the God of the Bible alone is the Savior. The Savior of oppression and the oppressed. Now, James has already come down hard on oppression in this book. And ignoring of the poor and disenfranchised. But how do we put it? In verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5, he brings the hammer on it. By not just attacking the evil wealthy, but declaring salvation from the oppression caused by the way of the evil rich and powerful and the way they live. This is more about what the Lord is going to do and less about what the evil rich are doing. Look again at verses 1 through 6 with me. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You, you, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. There are three things that the evil rich or sinful handling of riches are guilty of, right? First, in verse 3, he describes hoarding stuff, which means cornering and not sharing the resources and taking so much. Get this, having a monopoly, having a control over so much of something that, that not only is there not enough for others to live, but controlling and able to price gouge stuff people need. Why is milk cost so much? Okay, not going there. Then secondly, in verse 4, defrauding people by not giving them fair or right wages. In, in, in verse 4, and because the rich and cruel own and run things, almost everything, that the poor have no choice but to stay stuck working with too low wages like that or else die. That These oppressors are giving people one or two choices in their systematic oppression. Starve or be mistreated. Starve or be underpaid. And that should never have to be a choice for anyone. And then finally in verse 5, self-indulgence, which is making all that is owned and all that people working for and the riches about you and your goals and your bottom line and your glory instead of God's glory in the common good. You just take and move and mount and monument and people, places and things with only one regard for you. For how it can make you feel on top that it points to your awesomeness with an undeniable bling bling godlike opulence. This unjust wealth, wealth building and keeping is the sum. Hear me now. It's the sum and pinnacle of all the flexing we were talking about. Right? Because the flexing in the face of God all over people's dignity and worth and God's law along with a sinister plan to run things in verse 1 through 6 of chapter 5, it has paid off. Right? They are rich. And the God who says this about it in Proverbs, that he hates what these evil, rich, and powerful have done with what? Haughty eyes and a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart devises, that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers is, is, is almost added up. Like there's this consummate evil picture among the wealthy evil in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. That whatever it is that God despises and hates is right here in the oppression that's felt and dealt out in what's going on in verses 1 through 6. Jesus describes God who hates, excuse me, James describes God who hates this stuff as who in verse 4? Look carefully. In the end of verse 4, right before verse 5. As the Lord of hosts. You know what this means? 
the Lord of hosts is a distinction of God the warrior or general or divine or holy gangster, right? Who is going to regulate all this irregular and deregulating arrogance and activities and hatred of their sheer arrogance. God is going to cause and do what? Make them weep and howl in misery. Because why? Verse 2 tells us and then verse 5. Because the voice of the oppressed have reached him. The pain of those suffering has reached God. And the ways they have unjustly gotten rich, he's going to slaughter them like a fat cow or pig. And it says their fat hearts, their sheer arrogance and hatred for God's being the Lord and King and ignoring what he says, kind of facts flexing, right? And he's going to smash them like a fat bug. but not just because they are going against God, but as a direct appeal to those who are being crushed by them in this life. Look carefully at verse 4 and then verse 6. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And then look what it says in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And this he does not resist you means mistreatment of innocent people. Now get this. Who have no will or ability or desire to harm you. You have defrauded and mistreated and taken their dignity away in pursuit of happiness and dominance and power in a way and place that only God could. But even God wouldn't and doesn't. This is not primarily a corrective to the rich. But about God saving us in our world from oppression caused by human arrogance and flaunting and humans trying to make themselves lords that he hates so much not only because it flies in the face of his lordship but it is simply mean to each one of us this may seem like a hard passage especially when he said who are you talking about when you say you and we you know what makes this hard, especially since so many of us in here live in middle-class duality in America at this time? It means we are poor and rich. So many of us in here are arrogant and humbled. But this is a hard one. Because when I read this passage, this is a celebration. That God alone is the Savior. So don't be rich and mean and oppressive and evil because he's going to crush you. But also don't worry. Come now, everyone. God is going to put an end and a stop to oppression. You might know it might be a good exercise and it's so true. That we should be able to sing this song and dance and sing. Can we? Think about it. Think if we had a happy song to these words. Come now, you rich, and weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Do, 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 right? <laughs> Yay! Finally! Your riches have rooted and rotted, and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Dun, dun, dun. Right? I can't sing, or I'd sing. 
You have laid up your treasure in the last days. Behold, the wage of labors who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. Yay! And the cries of the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Come on, everybody. Put your hands in the air like you just don't care. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Yay! Right? Shouldn't we be happy? Why aren't we happy? I understand your reservations about you saying yippee. But understand that we can be happy for and in his act of glory and reign and lordship over oppression and oppressors and oppressive systems. He will save his people and this world from under them. Isn't that good news? You know it's mainly only good news when you've been oppressed. What if you've been abused? What if you're under the thumb? What if you can't eat every day? What if you have to look at your children and say, we ain't got no place to live? What if you're afraid to go home every day to your husband? Because you might get beat. What if you're afraid as a kid because you might get abused in some way by uncle so-and-so or cousin so-and-so? And nobody cares. This is a song of salvation that James is talking about. Watch a documentary on Netflix about the sex trafficking industry and the way that thing works between pimp and trafficker and the women and girls and boys that are prostituted and trafficked. This passage by James goes perfectly. And one police officer on a task force to bring an end to sex trafficking was like, to end the oppression of these women and girls, we must take down the pimp and the johns. Which means, get this, attacking and taking their stuff, their riches, in an attempt to sober their psycho thinking that not only makes them think they're above the law, but makes them think they are okay and right, judging and slandering and mistreating and living a sordid life the way they think. And I couldn't help but think that what she was doing and talking about was freedom for the trafficked. And in reverse, in some ironic way, also for the crazy mind and heart and disturbed human being in the pimp. Why then is this passage good news for us all without us having to lie about or lessen the ills of oppression and abuse? Because whether we are arrogant and rich and covered in decadence and power and control at the unjust and evil expense of others, or if we are on the bottom or under the thumb for those believers or those who would be believers who struggle with arrogance, God has and will do what it takes appropriate for both groups to end human oppression. Do you understand that what God hates, hates you, whether you are on the top or on the bottom? 
that arrogance is like the weight and effect of corroding temporal misuse riches. It eats your flesh. It like peep in people in the field. It keeps you guilty before God. It fattens you for slaughter. And God, the Lord of hosts, has determined to deliver us from that and from underneath that kind of injustice ruling over us and ruling us. This is good news for the rich and famous and poor and disenfranchised. Because the Lord of hosts has not destroyed his people who are oppressed or oppressing, but he saves them. Let me close with this. Look at verse 6. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is gospel code language. Because in hated arrogance, innocent people are condemned and murdered in their righteousness along with it. An innocent person, therefore an innocent person had to come to be condemned, murdered, mistreated, hated on, so that we can become the reverse of the verse. Lifted, given new life, renewed in our righteousness, so that we will no longer resist the lordship of God. Jesus did not resist the cross. In his divine and human innocence, he took on everything God hated and considered abominations in what we were doing and what was being done to us and was murdered. Why? Because Jesus in the Lord of hosts is alone the Savior, the ruler, the king, the judge. He chose not to flex so that we can live boldly and confidently and fill with hope before God and each other. Come now, out of the flex zone and into God's safe zone in Christ Jesus. He alone is our hope and our help from our arrogance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the humility, the divine humility that crushes our arrogance. We thank you that you're coming. You're going to put an end to systems of oppression and pain Lord, we praise you that oftentimes a road to success and opulence and fame is lined with people who've been misjudged. It's lined with people in lives that evil plans have built, been built upon. Lord, we need you because people are stuck there. Unless you, the Lord of hosts, comes and delivers us from under the weight. Forgive us for our arrogance. Help us to repent and find hope. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.